this Sunday to Sweeney Ridge, 3.6 miles round trip, leaving here for carpooling at uh, 11 a.m. and there are flyers on the table. Anyone else? Okay. Well, I have several. Um, this Friday morning, um, the Eightfold Path Study Group meets to discuss wise livelihood with Tony and Inez from 10 to 12. And this Friday evening is the Full Moon Gathering for Women with Misha Merrill, Cheryl Gassner, Bonnie Zimmerman from 7 to 9. And Saturday morning, there's a half-day yoga and meditation from 9.30 to 1 with Terry Lesser. Next Tuesday morning on the 9th begins a four-week series, Introduction to Concentration, from 10 a.m. to 11.30 with Richard Shankman. Also on Tuesday the 9th um, in the evening, Donald Rothberg will be doing a presentation and book signing, 7.30 to 9. Um, his book is The Engaged Spiritual Life, A Buddhist Approach to Transforming Ourselves and the World. And then on Wednesday the 10th begins a five-week series with Gil, Introduction to Mindfulness Meditation, 7.30 to 9. And there's flyers for most of these events on the literature table in the community hall. And uh, it's my pleasure to welcome Inez, my wife, <laughs> um, to, who's going to be uh, talking tonight. Um, she first became interested in meditation from her yoga practice in 1970, and then began practicing Buddhist meditation in 1985. And Gil Franzel became her primary teacher in 1995, and she's currently in the, participating in the Community Dharma Leader Program out of Spirit Rock, and she's also managing director here at Insight Meditation Center, and she's a retired chiropractor. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I want to talk about uh, tonight what we value. Um, as we look at our coming year, many of us are, um, have a custom of uh, taking some time and evaluating our lives and looking to the new year for, uh, with hope of setting new goals, um, aspirations, starting over on some things, doing some things better. Uh, so we make resolutions. Sometimes uh, we're starting this new year after um, uh, an intense period of overindulging. Um, you know, too much food and drink and uh, social stimulation. Um, the tradition of making resolutions dates back through the centuries. People have been doing it for a long time. Uh, the tradition of breaking resolutions also <laughs> dates back through the centuries. In fact, most of us, have, by January 30th, have not only broken most of the resolutions, but have probably even forgotten what they were. So having said that, <laughs> um, I'd like to talk a little bit about what we value. Um, our resolutions um, seem to be based on what we evaluate is most important to us. But evaluating, uh, the definition means to place a value on, to judge the worth of something. It's something we do. We superimpose it on something. It's, it's an activity. 
It's not inherent in the thing we place a value on. For instance, if you think about in the 50s, you know, women really valued their, their wonderful beehive hairstyles. Uh, you know, and now we kind of think they're sort of funny. Um, Henry David Thoreau said, there is no value in life except what you choose to place upon it, and no happiness in any place except what you bring to it yourself. Human beings are born in ignorance. If you watch a baby, it's pretty obvious they can't do anything for themselves. Um, They can't talk, feed themselves, um, or pretty much do anything. They just follow their desires. They struggle to fulfill their need for food, uh, um, their need for touch. They just go for what's pleasant, and they get upset if uh, something isn't pleasant, if they'll let you know when um, uh, they have a full diaper. Um, It doesn't take long um, for them, though, for them to start having um, not just what they need to survive, but just anything that feels good, they start getting very attached to it. And that's easy to tell when you, you know, you take a, a very young child and you take their favorite object, you try to take it away from them. They're very, very attached. And that's very early on. That type of attachment is something that's inherent in us. It's, it's hardwired. It's built into us. And in Buddhism, we call that attachment or craving um, tanha. It's uh, the Pali word that actually means thirst. It's this clinging, craving for something. You just have to have it. The Buddha pointed that this craving or thirst is really the root or the cause of our suffering. Tanha is a desire that's in some way compulsive. It's a desire that feels driven. It feels tense. It's hard to let go of it. It's often accompanied by contraction in the body, deep tension. Just try to take that toy away from the child, and you really can see what Tanha looks like. I remember um, many years ago, you know, waking up in the morning, I was in a really great mood, and I was making myself a cup of coffee, you know, and um, I was about to make myself a cup of coffee. And my husband walks into the kitchen, and he says, oh, I hit it, you can't have it. <laughs> and immediately, my mood just went from feeling great to being really upset. And uh, before I realized that he was teasing, <laughs> and um, you know, and that's really what cravings like, you know. I mean, and that was just a simple cup of coffee. So we can see how deeply uh, we attach to so many things that um, that are a lot more meaningful than a simple cup of coffee. Um, When craving has the upper hand, it's really hard to make good choices. I mean, that moment when he told me I couldn't have it, you know, I definitely was not going to be nice. And um, unfulfilled desire quickly turns to frustration and anger. Constant wanting can exhaust the mind. It makes us tense. In mindfulness meditation, one of the things uh, that we notice is how pervasively and constantly the mind is controlled by craving. 
the desi- this desire or compulsion is the primary reason that the mind chases after its own thoughts. Every time the mind moves away from stillness, it's from craving, you want something. You don't like your constant state, you want a little something else, or oh, that thought, this thought. An important function of meditation is to calm down the constant craving so we can discover a deeper sense of well-being. As a child begins to make choices, it's obvious that for the child's own welfare, they shouldn't always get their way. They have to learn some level of wisdom. Look before you cross the street. Don't touch the hot stove. To some degree, we have to restrain our desires just to survive. If we didn't, society couldn't function. People would just, oh, just walk off their jobs. They didn't feel like doing them. The children wouldn't wouldn't be cared for. We'd have chaos. Wisdom lets us know that it's essential to let go of many of the impulses or desires we have that get in the way of our well-being. The desire to get what we want is inborn. But most of us live our lives as if getting what we want, when we want it, is going to make us happy. But when we get what we want, what happens? We just want something else. It can be anything. You know, we can want really lofty things. We can want intellectual stimulation. We can want entertainment. We can want food. We can want rest. We can want music. The entire range of the human experience, one want following another. I like what Gill said. You know, he said that instead of um, calling ourselves human beings, it might be more accurate to call ourselves human desirelings. Instead of focusing on all these passing desires, Buddhism teaches us to focus on the desire for our larger well-being which is a desire in itself. In Pali, the desire for higher happiness or higher long-lasting well-being is called chanda, as opposed to desire to fulfill our, our immediate cravings. With practice, we can cultivate a sense of well-being that comes from being independent, from not needing other things to be happy. But that state of well-being needs a chance to develop. If we're constantly giving in to our impulses to get this and chase that, we don't get a chance to develop it. I remember I remember a number of years ago, um, I was attending a three-week retreat in the desert. And um, Many of you have done retreats. The retreats are um, a period of time you spend in silence, mostly meditating all day, alternating between sitting meditation and walking meditation. You don't do any reading or writing. You don't talk to anyone. There's no, no stimulation, no social stimulation, no other stimulation. And um, life's very simple. You know, you just have a roof of your head. There's enough food. And... Um, and that's about it. And I remember um, sometime in the middle of the retreat, you know, walking out from the meditation hall to my room um, in the middle of the, you know, late at night. And, um, 
and just having this very deep sense of stillness and happiness and realizing that I didn't need anything. I just, I, I was just happy and there was nothing uh, that it was dependent on. And um, I didn't need even my friends or my family or the people I loved. I was just very deeply happy. And um, during the rest of the retreat, a lot of that lasted. Sometimes uh, I'd be very deeply happy. Sometimes sufferings would come. Um, they became just so clear that, the, that all of that came from my mind, that it wasn't dependent on, on anything, any possessions or any actions or any situations. The restraining of the many daily pleasures that I normally reach for just gave me the room to develop a deeper sense of happiness, which was able to bloom during this retreat. It's just, it's having the space to develop that. We're, we're so busy sometimes just chasing this and chasing that, there is no time to really uh, give ourselves that, that opportunity. The practice of reflecting on what I value has been a very powerful process in my own life. At different times, reevaluating my life, I've made very large changes. Many years ago, at the peak of my career as a chiropractor, I realized that what was really important to me was time. And my husband and I discussed it, and um, though it wasn't the best financial decision, we stopped working and we chose time over money. We gave ourselves that gift of time. After um, several years of appreciating the luxury of time, during a period of reflection, I realized that things had changed for me. What seemed to be important to me now was that at the end of my life, I wanted to feel well-used, well-utilized. And I really had a very strong need to do service. And um, I didn't know how. You know, I just allowed that realization to just to hang with it for a period of time. And as the opportunity arose, um, I just started saying yes to what was in front of me. And, and saying yes, and saying yes. And that's how I ended up being managing director at the center. <laughs> um, but sometimes uh, reflecting on my values has created uh, significant changes that are not visible. Uh, they're not visible outwardly. Um, a number of years ago, my husband and I had the opportunity to um, uh, meet the Dalai Lama, and um, he was. Uh, it was like a, an evening of there like maybe about 300 people, and at the end of the evening, we all 300 of us stood in line and he systematically met each one of us and shook our hands. And we were somewhere around, you know, 100 or so down the line. And when he got to me, um, I always remember that moment. You know, he was completely unrushed, completely present, and just full of this just kindness and warmth. And I felt so seen and appreciated and... Um, and then he just continued to, to greet the next person with that same level 
of kindness and attention. And um, I remember he said once, he said, um, my religion is very simple. My religion is kindness. And that stayed with me. Um, And it's something that I I just kept uh, really close to me. And... um, and, you know, on reflection, you know, one, one time when I, I was really, we were, um, my husband and I were, were I, I don't remember anything, we were work, it was right after a retreat we did together, and we decided that what we wanted to do was that when we have conflict between us, um, that if one of us has the presence of mind uh, to notice, that they would ask the other person to be kind. And that's what we do. So if, um, if I get irritable, he very often uh, has the presence of mind to ask me to be kind. And, you know, he doesn't tell me to stop being, uh, you know, stop being angry or stop being what I am. But he just asks for kindness. It's a request. And it's not something that I would ask a stranger. <laughs> you know, it's something that uh, we have worked out that works really well for us. Sometimes he has to ask more than once. <laughs> but um, it's amazing how quickly that, uh, because we both have a commitment to kindness, uh, to having this in our lives, um, how quickly I'm able to let go. It actually, it really surprises me sometimes. I can go from really holding on very tightly and just being reminded of this intention for kindness in my life. So this year, I've been reflecting on, you know, what's important to me at this point in time. And how do I, you know, what I do periodically is um, I look at the qualities of my life that I feel I want to develop. Like, um, like one year, I noticed um, I just spent a lot, like months and months focusing on the quality of patience, which was what I really, you know, wanted to bring into my life. And um, what I've been looking at is, uh, continuity of practice and I've noticed that over the years my mindfulness has developed and you know I've gotten much more mindful when I'm on the cushion and much more mindful when things are going well and um, and but there's certain areas that are very much I tend to ignore and um, and gloss over uh, or resist so um, you know, I wanted to, um, you know, see how I could bring more attention to those areas. So I've been thinking about the Thomas Jefferson quote, um, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. In practice, being vigilant means guarding the senses. It means paying careful attention to what we feel, what we think, uh, what we hear, what we see, what we taste, what we sense. So it means like constantly being, paying attention to what's coming in through our sense doors, including what's coming in into our minds. Um, in the Dhammapada, the Buddha said, vigilance is the path to the deathless, negligence the path to death, The vigilant do not die. The negligent are as if already dead. The Buddha was a warrior, 
And so you often hear in the Buddhist writings his um, imagery uh, that comes from being a warrior, you know, guarding the senses, you know, the guard, vigilance. And um, intellectually, you know, I really, I like the concept, you know, really paying attention carefully. But emotionally, I've always contracted when I heard the word vigilance um, or guarding. Um, it always reminded me of the, the guards at Buckingham Palace, you know, kind of really stiff and emotionless and, you know, can't get them to crack a smile no matter what you do, you know, this very um, military attitude. So I, it felt a little oppressive to me. And so um, I reflected on what would be helpful to me, um, you know, to, to really honor the concept of what the Buddha said, but in words that, that suited me. And what I work with is friendly vigilance. That um, so instead of the quality of standing at the door, guarding against the enemy, um, you know, I imagine myself standing at the door, waiting for my good friends to come and visit. Um, I know many of you have heard this Rumi poem, uh, uh, which expresses this really beautifully. And uh, I'm going to read it again. So it's always an inspiration for me. It's called The Guest House. This being human is the guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. With the quality of friendly vigilance, we can turn our attention to craving itself. Craving is a powerful universal force. We can try to ignore it or, or push it away one moment and pops up in the next. It's incessant. It's important to really begin to investigate this force. What is desire? What's compulsion really like? We don't have to wait long to look or look far to see how our desires function. If you have air conditioning or heating in your car, how soon do you adjust it? The moment you're just a little uncomfortable, are you automatically changing the switch? Um, if you want something to eat it when you're at home, do you immediately go to the refrigerator and grab something? If you have a moment with nothing to do, do you automatically grab something to fill it, a book, turn on the music, TV, watch a movie, call someone? Um, these are times, they're very powerful times where you have this craving where you actually, if you just take a moment and stop, you have the opportunity to really examine 
what craving is truly like. How does wanting feel? Does wanting feel good? Is it painful? What happens to your body when you want something? Do you contract somewhere? Do your shoulders tighten? Do you lean forward? Does your abdomen tighten? How do you actually feel when you want something? That moment when you stop. Can you open to to that feeling of wanting, not push it away? A simple exploration, this is the wanting, this like. It's not that there's anything wrong with the things we may fill our time with, like listening to music or reading a good book or even adjusting our air conditioning. Those can all be skillful choices. What we're looking, what we're looking at here is the unseen constant drive for pleasure and away from the unpleasant, the incessant drive to fulfill our desires and the underlying unhappiness the moment they're not fulfilled. This constant manipulation of our lives to maximize our pleasure and minimize our pain, it creates a deep thread of constant tension because it never ends. There's always something new to want, something to get rid of. Someone said that most of us mistake comfort for happiness. So sometimes we start the year with great intentions and lofty goals. But after the initial enthusiasm, the reality of the effort it takes to pursue them soon sets in. Effort is often not comfortable or pleasurable. For instance, we may reflect, you know, look at our lives and realize that we want to commit ourselves to right speech that it's essential for long-term happiness, that are for self-respect and dignity, for uh, healthy relationships with other people. And we really want to keep that value in mind. Um, But we may also have a very strong habit of gossiping. So, and soon we find ourselves just tempted. We've got a very juicy bit of information, and we really, really want to tell it. You know, so you've got this very strong drive, you know, to, um, to, you know, to share that information. Uh, but we remember aspirations, say, no, no, I really want to stop gossiping. This isn't a, you know, good thing in my life. And so we restrain ourselves. How does that feel? How does that feel? Is that comfortable? Is that, uh, your whole, you've got your whole energy going in one direction, all of a sudden you stop it? Um, But if we take that time and stop, we can actually really begin to look at the roots of that desire to gossip. Why do we want to gossip? Do we want to look interesting? We want to look important? Uh, We want to be liked? And, And if we really keep looking at that, we can see that all those desires to be liked, to be wanted, are all based on suffering. There's pain inherent in all of them. To pursue what we value requires effort. What's unskilled, what's unskilled in us is already conditioned. It has a momentum of its own. So if we're in the habit of gossiping, we're already 
uh, in the habit of doing it, it's got its own rhythm, its own momentum, and it takes effort to stop. It's not going to stop without effort. Doing anything on any level takes some level of effort. Effort can have both pleasant and unpleasant aspects. For instance, you know, um, if you go running, uh, sometimes running, there's a lot of pleasure to running. The body feels great, the movement feels wonderful, and sometimes you're tired and it just feels, you know, like you've got leaded legs. Um, so, but even if it's unpleasant, you don't have to suffer. Suffering is when you start resisting the unpleasantness. If, um, if you're running and, you know, and you're feeling that, that weight and that heaviness in the legs and, you're, you know, and it's feeling unpleasant, but then you say, I shouldn't feel this way. And um, you cling to the fact that you don't want to feel this way. All of a sudden, things get a lot tighter, a lot more unpleasant. We've added this whole layer of suffering to the experience. I like what Shinzen Young says. He says, um, you know, he's a scientist. You know, he likes to put everything in formulas. He says, suffering equals pain times resistance. Um, if we keep in mind our greater well-being instead of following our short-term impulses, we find that our resistance to effort actually diminishes and effort itself becomes less effortful. You often hear, um, and many of you I'm sure have experienced this, you know, it's athletes talk about this, and musicians, uh, they talk about being in the zone. It's a state of where you're just present, and you know, you can be doing something that's really takes intense amount of effort and concentration, but it feels, it just feels like there's no effort whatsoever. This happens with mindfulness. The more we practice mindfulness, the less effort it takes to stay mindful. Um, we, call it, we call that effortless effort. You know? And um, you know, we talk about practicing mindfulness, but there are times when mindfulness is just happening. You know, that's effortless effort. There's often a difference between what we believe are our higher values and and how we live our lives. Our attention and our time spent follows what we are valuing in the moment. Valuing is something we do, something we give importance to. So we may think we want to be happy and liberated, but we may be valuing comfort more, staying in bed in the morning instead of uh, meditating. Um, the valuing is just a habit of mind which can be trained like any other habit. In many ways, Buddhist practice can be seen as a practice of gradually replacing or compulsive desires um, and cravings for, or a desire for greater well-being, for chanda. So replacing the lesser desires for the greater desires. So we can ask ourselves, what's important to us? What do we give our attention to? How do we spend our time? Do we value the quality of our minds, the people in our lives, the strangers we meet, 
Do we value qualities like patience, generosity, kindness? Do we value appearances, looks, possessions? Or attention follows what we value. For instance, let's say um, we meet a very old woman and um, who's a very loving person. If her values are, you know, much more prominent, uh, much more based on looks, we might look at her and the main thing we see are her wrinkles. But if we value an open heart, maybe we see her warm smile. Might still notice the wrinkles. It's not that we don't see them. But the focus of our attention is on the warmth of her smile. There's a saying that many of you, I'm sure, have heard is uh, when a pickpocket sees a saint, all he sees, sees are his pockets. Um, do we value winning? Do we value being right? Attention, praise, acknowledgement? Do we value pleasant mind experiences, entertainment, movies, books, conversation, or pleasant sense experiences, food, chocolate, that's its own category, of course, Um, warmth, comfort, physical intimacy. Do we value well-being, happiness, an open heart? To manifest our desire for long-term happiness, we need to give attention to the individual moments of our lives, keeping our aspiration in sight, but our primary attention has to be in the details of our days. Do we have moments that we value more than others? Or are there moments that we have that we don't value at all? Do we value the present moment no matter what it brings us? Are the moments that we actually judge as not worth living? Are the moments not worth experiencing, not worth paying attention to? Do we find ourselves waiting for experiences to be over? Can we value our unwanted experiences? Can we open to them, explore them, not resist them? Shinsen Young said that with practice, wasting time is no longer conceivable. He said being unexpectedly kept waiting for an hour somewhere means an hour of a secret use and hidden enjoyment. There are no waiting hours in our lives. I'd like to end this um, with a poem from a um, good friend some of you know, um, Ashwin Iyengar. Um, Gently, I want the heart to open wide like an automatic door at the push of a button and be flooded by all the elements, the wind, the sunshine, the rain, the smell of the earth, the chirping of the birds. But it doesn't work that way. It opens suddenly, yes. Unexpectedly, yes but little by little. It opens to let a smile in. It opens to drop a demand or a little bit of judgment. 
that little bit of judgment that can create a hell in no time and cast away the beloved. It opens when I let a bit of my selfishness go, when I smile suddenly in the middle of my anger or while shaking my head, when I am trying to be in the present but bask in memories without restraint. It opens just in time to hold back a comment, realizing that not doing is as much a sign of love as doing. Thank you. May this uh, coming year bring peace and happiness to you and everyone you come in contact with. Thank you. And um, we actually have a few minutes if you have any comments or questions or um, any thoughts about the, you know, uh, any aspirations for the new year. Any resolutions you actually plan to keep, or <laughs> are there any questions or comments? When, when you were speaking, um, many of those examples that occurred to me that where I get pleasure often is something I know how to do and then doing it. But I heard a a phrase repeated recently that I've heard many times that uh, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. (laughs) I'm afraid we hammer too many things that aren't nails or we look for a time to go hammer something. And so I just started looking at, at the things that I really enjoy or I really am capable of doing and wonder if I'm caught in the hammer syndrome rather than just opening to experience whole new things that I'm not that competent at. Just thank you for that thought. Thank you. That's it. So uh, we'll say good night a little bit early tonight. Thank you very much.